everybody. Welcome to another episode of Logocentric. I'm Daxton Page, and today we are here with Dr. Stephen Hicks. Stephen Hicks is a professor of philosophy at Rockford University. He is also the executive director at the Center for Ethics and Entrepreneurship and a senior, uh, excuse me, a senior scholar at the Atlas Society. He's also author of two books right behind me, um, Nietzsche and the Nazis and Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault. Dr. Hicks, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about Nietzsche. So I'm an entrepreneur and growing up kind of in an entrepreneurial circle, I was hearing Nietzsche quoted a lot for being a philosopher that is for the strength of the individual and the will. Um, mm -hmm. But reading your book, it seems that Nietzsche's philosophy has taken a little bit more of a negative interpretation in postmodern circles. Uh, so in your opinion, would you say that Nietzsche's philosophy is ultimately a positive one or a negative one, mm. or maybe a bit of a mixed bag, so to, uh, so to speak? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, Nietzsche does have a lot of inspiring rhetoric. So in one sense, he's certainly a, a romantic about life, that life should be this great quest and a great adventure. And that's the sort of thing that will appeal to the, the entrepreneur in anybody, because uh, the idea of living a, a safe, comfortable, letting society and other people look after you as kind of demeaning to, uh, to what it is to be a human being, all of that certainly you can find in, in Nietzsche. But it is also true that when you read more deeply into his philosophy, uh, all of those elements do get undercut. So, you know, one thing we might say is that, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur, I should take charge of my life and forge my own destiny. But then you'll find at various places, Nietzsche saying that nobody is in charge of their life and destiny has everything mapped out for you. Or entrepreneurs will thrill to saying, you know, I, I can think about difficult problems. There's not an answer in the back of the book and I'm going to figure things out and experiment and create something new. And my mind, therefore, is, is, uh, is powerful and I can trust myself. But then what we find is Nietzsche, again, in his deeper philosophy, undercuts the idea that our minds have any competence whatsoever to understand the world and yeah. react, right, and so forth. So it is a kind of a split decision. And you do mention the postmoderns. Uh, yeah, the, the postmoderns are a much more negative, cynical, jaded, and there's a, a lot of that certainly in Nietzsche. Nietzsche is one of the great diagnosticians of psychological decay and hypocrisy. But I do think overall, uh, Nietzsche uh, is seeing those as a, a, a warning not to go down those roads, be aware of these psychological pitfalls, but he is ultimately a, a make your life a great adventure if that's possible to you. Whereas the postmoderns on my reading are more unrelievedly jaded and cynical. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Now, um, continuing with postmodernism <clears throat> and more specifically critical theory, um, in your book you mention people like Herbert Marcuse, who was responsible for the sort of synthesis of Marx and Freud. Now, um, one of the things I wanted to bring up was I've seen something called the hermeneutics. I believe I'm saying that correctly, of suspicion, which mixes those two thinkers and Nietzsche. <laughs> So I wanted to know uh, your thoughts on that sort of school of thought, that sort of skeptical school of thought, which 
mm-hmm. from my understanding, derives a lot from postmodern thought, from critical theory. Um, so what role does Nietzsche and his thoughts have in this sort of synthesis of Marx and Freud, oppression and repression? Yeah, well, that's a, a good, good hard question. Yeah, one of the things that happens with uh, educated people is they engage with the, the smartest, deepest, and most provocative thinkers of the past, and then they put together their own synthesis uh, of, of them. And what's <clears throat> yeah, certainly striking is this marriage of uh, someone like uh, uh, Nietzsche right, with Freud uh, that we do find coming to the fore between the two world wars in the, in the 20th century. At that point, Freud is alive and writing still in the 1920s uh, and, and there's a world figure. Nietzsche has been dead, dead for, a, for a generation. So someone like Marcuse, whom you mentioned, right? And the, the phrase I think is hermeneutics of suspicion. Yes. It's one of those, yeah, multi-syllabic ones. Uh, Marcuse is uh, certainly drawing on Freud and Nietzsche, but he's also drawing a lot on Marx, which makes it even more bizarre uh, initially, because initially one thinks of Marxism as a strong, uh, uh, at least philosophically, a strong environmental determinism that people are born more or less putty or plasticine to be totally molded and shaped yeah. by environmental forces. You know, so Marx goes to the point of saying that there is actually no human essence or no human nature. What you become totally is constructed by your social upbringing, most specifically your economic upbringing. And then uh, in Nietzsche and then more pro uh, uh, not quite more provocatively, but certainly more explicitly in Freud, you find the opposite of that, the the idea that environmental conditioning has almost nothing to do with what one is as a human being. Instead, one is uh, entirely biologically constructed. So what you find in both of them is uh, they are post-Charles Darwin, post-evolution thinkers, and so in Nietzsche, the language of instinct is, is very strong. And Freud trained as a, as a medical doctor first. And so he has a very strongly biological understanding. And so what you find there is the idea that human beings have kind of bred into them over the course of countless generations, certain core instincts, and those manifest themselves psychologically but then one's psyche and one's behavioral patterns are almost totally dictated by uh, those biological concerns. So what, uh, what is interesting is how one is trying to reconcile two apparently opposite mm-hmm. systems. So what you find in the critical theorists, and here I assume you know, that's a, a very broad label. You mean primarily people in the Frankfurt School Yes. Uh, Adorno, Horkheimer, and, and so on. And then uh, Marcuse is a little bit younger, second generation or, or half generation. <clears throat> but what they are doing is all of them are, as young men, steeped very strongly in Marxist theory. And uh, it's not fair to say that they are orthodox Marxists because they're all quite intelligent and they're not totally in an ideological bubble they do, all of them have a look at the world that they are living in. And by the time you get to the post-World War I environment, 1920s and on into the 1930s, 
it's fairly clear that classical Marxism uh, isn't going to fly. You know, it is predicting all sorts of things that just are not happening. So what happens then is people who are in the Marxist tradition, but they want, uh, you know, they're still thinking of, them, of themselves as social scientists. You know, they're not just true believer ideologists. They then say, okay, we do need to modify the theory. Uh, you know, we ran the, the theory, there have been predictions made, uh, society has gone through a few experiments. How do we not abandon the theory, but how do we adjust the theory, uh, it, it, preserving the important elements, but coming up with a better explanatory model. And so this is, really is the heyday of neo-Marxisms, I think, starting after World War I. There have been some, like uh, Werner Sombart and others prior to World War I, but critical theory in the Frankfurt School is, is a variation here. So what they uh, are basically arguing is that Marxist psychology is too simplistic, too, uh, too primitive. So to, to argue that uh, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a simple oppression model, yeah. uh, that everything is imposed externally right, by social forces, that what we should do is uh, to recognize that a lot of the work is done by human beings on themselves. So, so human beings do have some measure of agency and rather than totally being putty shaped by external social forces, we do have social pressures that are put on them, but we adopt some of those social pressures and do the internal work of shaping our own psychology what we allow ourselves to think, what we don't allow ourselves to think. So all of them are then reflecting on Freud, and Freud has uh, his analysis of, particularly when people are younger, uh, they do have all of this instinctual energy and biological energy and so forth, but nonetheless, the influence of parents, teachers, and other social forces is also important, and we take this in, and we do have some measure of control and responsibility for repressing in our own minds things that we are taught we should not be allowing ourselves to, to do. So we push underground. It's not totally that it's, it's that we are shaped. So the way the, the, the Frankfurt schools, this is again a little too simplistic, are saying is that we do have the oppression model of external exploitation and alienation from Marx, yeah. but we also need to add a Freudian repression model to try to understand why, despite the fact that we think that modern Western liberal society, capitalist society is so totally corrupt and horrible and doing terrible things, why aren't the people who are the victims of it doing something about it? And then the, the Freudian element then is to say, well, they are repressing themselves in addition to being oppressed. And so they only allow themselves to think. So. The, the, the consciousness that they end up with is this hybrid product. So something like that. Yeah, it, se it seems like, at least to me, that it's, it's, it's borderline a rhetorical tool um, that, because, and this is something we could kind of touch on with other people that are mentioned in your book. Um, maybe it's something that, and let's actually go there for a moment. So people like Kant, um, you could say, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if you feel differently. It's, it's not that necessarily Kant is a postmodernist, it's that he had certain axioms that laid the intellectual groundwork um, for postmodernism. And maybe 
you know, and again, tell me what you think about this. Maybe it's that some of these postmodernists were taking some of these thinkers like Freud, like Nietzsche, Kant, Marx, and sort of cherry picking what they needed as a rhetorical tool to be an effective enemy against Western liberal capitalism. Yeah. Um, so what do you think of that analysis? Yeah, no, that, that, that's good. No, Kant is not a, not a postmodernist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Marx, uh, two generations later, not a postmodernist. Uh, Nietzsche, uh, even Heidegger, by the time you get uh, seriously into the 20th century, not a postmodernist. On my reading, you don't become a postmodernist until the generation of the 1950s. That it's a, it's a full, complete package. And so I do think postmodernism, or even the Frankfurt School, they're not postmodernists. Uh, they, they still think there is a reality out there and that uh, we can, with the correct tools, come to know reality and give a correct analysis of the way the world works and so on. So it's not until uh, Foucault, Derrida, Rorty, and the others that you have that anti-realist metaphysical position, that everything just is subjective narratives of a, of a certain sort. Now, you're right, though, to go back to, to Kant, though, because I do uh, uh, try to beat up on Kant as much as I can in, in my postmodernism book. And I do think of him as one of the major bad guys in the history of philosophy, but no, he's not a, a postmodernist. Uh, philosophy is, is complicated. So if you want to say, you know, here are the, say, 60 major issues that one needs to address to have a complete philosophy of life, you know, metaphysics, epistemology, normative issues, uh, issues of human nature, and so on. Uh, um, uh, you know, Kant, I would say, is, you know, postmodern really only on maybe five of those points. So that then is to say, you know, for the, for the most part, he is still, you know, a, a pre-postmodern in his thinker. But the important thing is that not all of those philosophical issues are equal in order of importance or order of fundamentality. And so the claim that I am making is that on the most fundamental issues in philosophy, and the, one of the core ones here is this issue of cognition or an epistemological issue. Uh, you know, what is the relation between the beliefs you know, in our minds and external reality? Is that a positive relation that we can characterize uh, with the phrases like objectivity? Right? Or is there, in principle, a break between the contents of our mind and an external reality? Uh, uh, and so that issue is, is, is fundamental. And my claim is that Kant marks a turning point in the late 1700s on that issue. So that's what he calls the Copernican revolution. And he's, he's making explicitly the claim uh, just as Copernicus had said, uh, we used to think that the earth is at the center of everything and the universe revolves around us. That's a major shift to realize that the sun is at the center and we're yeah. merely a satellite. So he's arguing that philosophy, with a few skeptics uh, uh, aside, through most of its history, has made the small o objectivist assumption. There is an objective reality and that our minds are competent in varying degrees and capable of coming to know that objective reality. Uh, 
uh, and Kant is saying that objectivity in that sense is what we need to abandon and replace it with a deep subjectivity, what we call reality or his phrase uh, phenomenal reality, the reality that we take to be the real world that is fundamentally a subjective creation and object of reality as it has been mythically portrayed by philosophers up to him, that's not knowable. So that's an important move in the history of philosophy. And then my claim is that then over the course of the next probably six or seven generations, depending on how you count these things, as the implications of that very deep Copernican change are worked out by philosophers, then you do end up with postmodernism. So, so that's, that's a really important analysis, I think, to point out. Um, with Before we move on to postmodernism more broadly, I want to talk a little bit more about Kant. So for Kant, I think people read him as an enlightenment figure um, because they read sort of, sort of what you pointed out, the non-fundamental issues. And so if you go and you see what he means when he says reason, he has a very specific definition and, and, and reason's ability to label and um, accurately describe the objective world. I think that's the fundamental shift. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but in that move, it's like when, when he's saying reason later on in his works, we can't take it for face value that he means reason the way you and I would mean reason as it's our um, ability to understand the objective world. And so I yeah. think maybe that is the fundamental misunderstanding where people put Kant into the, uh, the enlightenment category. Um, yes. But as Postmodernism as a label, I've even I've noticed um, bringing up postmodernism in like Reddit circles and, and threads and things like that, that people would say that people like Foucault and Derrida and uh, maybe even Rorty to an extent, I'm not sure, uh, would reject the label postmodernist. And I, th I, felt, I thought of an interesting analogy, which is uh, the grunge era of the early 90s. So this whole grunge genre came out and everyone's like, so you guys are a part of grunge, but no one in the, the genre was like, I don't, I don't know what grunge is. I don't subscribe to this definition. So it seems almost like postmodernism has a, a similar thing where they have a, a similar set of axioms that would definitely label them postmodern, but no one wants to take the label. Um, yeah. what, what are your thoughts on that? Okay, that's a, an interesting complex of, of questions there. Let me uh, take the first one about Kant as okay. enlightenment figure. Uh, no, I do think that Kant in some respects is an enlightenment figure. Okay. Uh, now that's a, partly a historical label and it's partly a, a high level uh, intellectual label describing a set of, set of positions. So if you were to say again on 60 issues, here's kind of mainstream enlightenment thinking on those 60 issues, there's a significant minority of those positions that Kant agrees with. Okay. And those positions are not traditional conservative positions. They're not you know, tr traditional religious positions. Uh, and they're not uh, you know, positions that are not are anti-enlightenment. Now, partly, uh, uh, I think that the claim does need to be relativized to some extent because the enlightenment means different things. Uh, uh, there, are, there are national differences. Again, this is high level uh, uh, generalities, but you know the French Enlightenment and the British Enlightenment, and then the much smaller German Enlightenment. Uh, they had different flavors and different emphases, right, and so forth. So, uh, to some extent, I'm comfortable with saying that on several issues, Kant was a member of the German Enlightenment, 
And that's, that's really good because, you know, Germany in the 1700s was in many respects a very backward, uh, a very backward place. So he does represent on some issues progress. And he was even, you know, liberal, right, on, on some, some, issues, uh, some issues as well. But again, uh, the issue of fundamentality should always be the most important one for, for philosophers. And uh, uh, if on fundamental issues, cognition issues, do we know the world is reason competent? Uh, you know, uh, should uh, individuals have freedom and the right to the pursuit of happiness as their, as their moral fundamental in life? Uh, if someone is rejecting all of those fundamentals to the Enlightenment, but adopting several of the more applied uh, issues with respect to Enlightenment thinking, then I would say that person is not really really an enlightenment thinker. So okay. you know, it's, it's a bit like, uh, you know, you and I suppose we say, you know, are you an honest person? Right. And I'm, I, and you asked me, am I an honest person? And we both say, yes, we are honest people. Uh, you know, but then if we say, well, why are you an honest person? And, uh, you know, and you say, well, I'm an honest person because I think, you know, I think it's important to face facts as they really are. Uh, so that I can be successful when I act in the world, and I want to have you know, real friendships and 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 romances, and that can only happen if uh, if if, if uh, you know I'm committed to being an honest person, and people know that about me. So you talk that kind of talk, and we say, okay, you're an honest person, but that's your philosophical rationale for being an honest person. But then I say I'm an honest person, and you say, well, why why are you an honest person? And I say, well, I'm I'm an honest person because well, I really want to lie a lot. I fear that God is watching me in every moment. And if I tell a lie, I'm going to burn in hell forever. And that's why I'm an honest person. So at one level, you and I are both honest people, but you and I are in very different philosophical worlds. And it's that underlying yeah. philosophical difference that really is the important issue uh, uh, in sorting out. How, how, how are you coming to the conclusion? That's right. And that's the philosophy terrain. Now, the, the second part of your, your question was then to come to the postmodernists who are, in, on my reading, drawing on, on, on significant elements of, of postmodernism, but then raise uh, the issue, as, as you're, you're pointing out, what, what exactly is a postmodernist? And that's a, a very high-level abstraction, because you know, it's saying something about you know, modernity. And so you have to first wrap your mind around, well, what do we mean by modernity? And that's already... A big whopper to get straight yeah. and then to say we're going to do something post all of that yeah. and by what we mean by the post and what goes in all of that is another big complex of things that need to be sorted out so uh, that's a lot of work and uh, and a lot of some discussion and we should expect that people whom we look at them and we say there are some important similarities in their work, so we're going to put them in this category. Uh, we can't ignore the fact that there still are going to be differences among those individuals, yeah. and part of the discussion is going to be, do the differences uh, outweigh the similarities on important enough issues that really we should put this person in a different category or in a, in a subcategory? And you are quite right to point out that many of the people that most of us would call postmodernists were uh, they're not comfortable with the label or actively rejected the label. Uh, and you know, partly that's for standard reasons. All of us 
who are you know, intellectuals, we want to be categorized correctly. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I, I, I don't want to be associated with certain other individuals. And we do know that uh, conceptual confusions arise with sloppy labeling, but also there's a lot of, uh, you use the word rhetorical maneuvering that goes on where people, uh, you know, they want to attack you by packaging you with someone else and then attacking something that's problematic with that person's view and therefore you're also refuted and that's an, an illegitimate move. But one other element of, uh, of this issue is that part of the postmodern package is uh, you know, a set of views about cognition and about epistemology. And you know, the, the, the famous stock phrase is to say that we're skeptical about meta-narratives. Uh, that is to say, we don't think theories, particularly big picture stories about the way the world works, can be objective, true, come to be known as certain, right, and so on. And so that means that we uh, think only in terms of narrative, right, not meta-narratives. And then maybe not even narratives, because already a narrative is too big and logical and in too much internal consistency. So we just have opinions and views and something less than, than even narratives. But behind all of that is a, a strong skepticism about our mind's abilities to know the world, to come up with abstract concepts and words that pick out important features of the world and objectively come up with taxonomical schemes for how to organize our understanding of the world. And if you are very skeptical about that entire project, then anytime someone wants to apply a very abstract label to you, your automatic reaction is going to be, I'm against abstract labels in principle, and so I'm against this particular abstract label being applied to me. So uh, then it will say that you know, we are anti-labeling or we are anti-conceptual. Um, so... Interesting. So, so yeah, I think maybe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that's Derrida that rejected or at least viewed categorization as, a, a, what would you say, a, a means to exclude, which I guess by definition isn't totally incorrect. I mean, that's, I guess, by nature, categories do exclude. That's how you categorize in the first place, I guess. Right. So, yeah, but it seems like, like you mentioned, you don't want to be lumped in with other people who may share uh, slightly different views that maybe are more trivial when it comes down to what you all fundamentally believe. So I guess another analogy could be like Christian denominations. It's like you have Protestants, you have, you know, um, evangelical, you have Baptist, Southern Baptist, um, Pentecostal, all these different denominations, but at their core axioms, there is a fundamental set of, uh, what would you say, um, unity among all these denominations, right? So would that be an accurate way to label postmodernists in a sense? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good analogy. And so our, our, our experience with arguing about religion and trying to categorize religions is, uh, is a perfectly good learning curve for us to go up to. So you know, what, what is a Christian, right, for example? And uh, we do know that uh, that's, wow, okay, that's a big whopping abstraction. But then yeah. we know there's uh, you know, Catholics and Protestants and Eastern Orthodox, and that's already a trifold division. And then within each of those, there are subspecies and so on. So pretty soon you do end up with what looks like a biological taxonomy of some very complicated animal kingdom. Uh, and then within that, you have the, the ongoing debates where the, you know, the Baptists and the Eastern Orthodox and the, and the Catholics, they're all 
busy saying, well, you guys aren't real Christians, right? And, uh, yeah. and so on. So the same thing happens with political movements you know, among the Marxists, uh, uh, even among the, the Freudians, who's a real psychoanalyst. An and we find the same thing among the, uh, among the postmoderns. But there, uh, I think it's, it's more, a more challenge because postmodernism is a broader philosophical label than either Marxism or Christianity. And it does have this additional challenge that we were just talking about that it abjures or rejects the idea that we can even come up with uh, good quality categorization schemes. Interesting. So I want to move, um, you mentioned Marxism there. So Marxism, Marxism has been a big topic of discussion, at least in the past um, four or five years in the, what you would call it, like, you know, they call it the intellectual dark web, so to speak, right? The conversations that have been taking place inside of that uh, network of people. Um, one of the things in your book I found really um, important is that I think maybe Marxism is important to understand because a lot of the ideas that modern um, postmodernists and socialism activists, so to speak, are pushing come from Marx. But I think Rousseau is actually a really, um, at least from what I've, what I've observed in like my personal Facebook feed, I'd see people sharing memes while I'm reading your book. And I'm like, wow, it's like I'm reading a Rousseau quote in an internet meme, you know? Okay. So what Good. was the fundamental, in my, or in your opinion, what was the fundamental shift from, as you put in your book, quoting Marx less and Rousseau more? Yes, no, that's a, that's a perceptive comment. Uh, yeah, Marxism, neo-Marxism, cultural Marxism, and then, uh, uh, uh elements of all of those incorporated into many versions of, of postmodernism. All of that is rich territory and important territory to work to understand the, the intellectual lineage. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I know I was planning to do a podcast on this. I can't remember off the top of my head. Did I do this one already or is I just <laughs> planning to do this? But yes. I, I do think it's, it's, it's correct to say that the contemporary left is much more Rousseauian than it is Marxist. Uh, and so we do need, but part, part of the problem is that neo-Rousseauianism is a much less uh, <laughs> linguistically useful label. So unfortunately yeah. we have a, a big complicated thing here. But if you, uh, if you think of Marxism, I mean, Marx did think of himself as a scientific socialist. And for him, then science is important. And he did think that we were objectively figuring out the way the world worked, that there are laws of nature uh, and uh, that there's a, an, an objective concept of justice and we can figure out where in fact history is going. And Marx, uh, this uh, sometimes sounds odd, was a favor in favor rather of industrial capitalism in the sense that he thought it was a necessary stage that humanity had to go through, that it was an improvement over the earlier feudal stage, and it's precisely industrial capitalism that's going to create the wealth that is then more easily going to be redistributed once we get to the socialist stage, right, and so forth. Now, all of those elements, though, you don't find those among contemporary leftists, right? They are anti-industrial. They are anti-scientific. They're not talking about 
uh, objectivity. They're rejecting right objectivity and the idea that we can figure out the way the world actually goes. They don't believe that there is such a thing as universal justice. They don't even necessarily believe that necessarily we are making the world a better place. So uh, on all of those issues, that's not Marxist. Right? And so in many cases, I think it's quite right for the, the contemporary true believers in Marxism to say, uh, that's not us, right? That's yeah. a different brand of leftism and that brand of leftism that is now prominent is, uh, is, just, is just wrong. But then when you look at the historical antecedents for those views, the anti-objectivity, the anti-capitalism as a necessary stage, uh, uh, and so forth, you, uh, the idea of uh, uh, being anti-technology, anti-industry, anti-everything, anti-reason, anti-objectivity, that's all very Rousseauian. And you find those themes strongly argued in, uh, in Rousseau two generations before Karl Marx. So one way of, of reading, and again, this is too simple, is to say that when feudalism started to be broken down in the 1700s and we started to have all of these revolutions, glorious revolution in England, American Revolution, French Revolution, and all of the associated scientific and industrial revolutions and the battle against slavery being joined, so the old world is being swept away uh, what are we going to replace it with? And then a lot of people are saying, well, some sort of democratic, liberal capitalism of some sort that's individualistic, that's going to be the wave of the future. There were lots and lots of versions of socialism kicking around at that point as well. Uh, you know, a dozen or more major varieties. And then it's not really for another two generations that Karl Marx comes along and says, all of these other versions of socialism are crap. Here's the correct version of socialism. And that's the one that partly because of the success of the Russian Revolution captured the minds of most Western intellectuals and became the dominant version of Marxism or, or of socialism. Yeah. Those experiments were run in the 20th century. They were all disasters, horrible, horrible disasters. And then by the end of the 20th century, people who are sympathetic to socialist thinking are saying, okay, Marxism isn't it, but we're still socialist in our core being. What else can we do? And they they end up going in much more Rousseauian directions. And so that sort of that shift, um, one of the things you brought up in the book was the different types of postmodernism. Um, I believe you labeled mm. uh, around five or so. Um, yes. And so it seems that that move is is that Machiavellian type of postmodern at least at least it seems to me it's like okay we can't justify the socialism anymore on empirical grounds let's just question um you know what it means to have empirical data in the first place and if there's even any value in pursuing reason or in pursuing art technology civilization and that, yeah. that seems to be the more rousseauian uh side of that so I, let's see let me uh, move on to the next so with rousseau um would you say that Okay, so um, forgive me. I, I want to make sure I get this question uh, right. right. No, take your time. So the Machiavellian side of it, we can't justify the socialism anymore. So we're turning to Rousseau. Rousseau seemed to almost, uh, what would you say, morph into this environmentalist type of socialism, mm. right? Very anti-technology, very almost like agrarian type of, of thing. So how do, 
this is, this is tricky. How do modern people justify this sort of primitivism and not recognize the statism of Rousseau? Or maybe that's built into the socialist ideology. It seems to me that that's a fundamental danger of Rousseau is, is his views on statism and primitivism. So what, what, what would you think of that? Sir? Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, that's an interesting question. I think it, it is partly philosophical, partly psychological. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, the philosophical parts are, you know, do you think individualism is important? Uh, do you think uh, people's pursuing their best self-interest and the pursuit of happiness are, are normal rights? Do you think that people should be uh, individually free to make their own way in the world? Do you think that science and technology are net benefactors to the human condition? And one can, for philosophical reasons, right, reject all of those things. You can think, no, my, my identity is best realized in the context of some group, a tribal, a tribal group. And so Rousseau is valorizing that. Uh, uh, I can come to think that no technology and science are net uh, damaging and destructive. And so I'm going to be in favor of some kind of a back to nature right, orientation. Uh, do I think that people can be left free to pursue their own happiness? Well, no, I'm pessimistic enough about human beings to think that they will screw things up. And so they need some sort of paternal or authoritarian control to, uh, to regulate their lives. And that's the, uh, the, classic, uh, the classic Rousseauianism. Uh, and you're right that uh, one of the major strands of environmental thinking, particularly in the 1960s and beyond, has been explicitly right, all, of, all of that. So they don't think you know, that science gives us better knowledge of the environment so we can improve things, or that wealth yeah. and technology enables us to clean up our messes and, 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 and solve uh, uh, problems and so forth. That, uh, people left to their own devices want to have a clean and productive and beautiful environment. So we need to have government control to make them do things because people are naturally pigs and, uh, and need that paternal control. So all of that Rousseauian environmentalism certainly is a, is a prominent theme. But another part of it I do think is, is psychological that uh, the modern world does in one sense put a lot of demands on people. When you say to people, you are a free agent and take charge of your life, become your own entrepreneur, be the artist of your life. It's a lot and of responsibility. That's a lot of responsibility and go for it. Be courageous. Uh, recognize you probably will fail many times before you, you succeed, but pick yourself up and, and try again. Uh, and a lot of people are kind of lazy and a lot of people are kind of cowardly. So they're just, they're not willing to, to go down that road. And it's much more comfortable for them to, to sense that somebody else is doing the thinking, someone else will do the looking after me. And that uh, instead of defining my own identity and creating my own life, to slip into kind of a prepackaged set of beliefs and a prepackaged identity, and, and a group that's going to going to look after me. Uh, so those different psychological types, I think uh, those in the second group will find the modern world very difficult for them. 
it's too much, too much responsibility. And of course, another part of it is that the modern world is very um, uh, science and technology friendly. And of course, we can make the argument that those have been enormously wonderful, right? Cognitive achievements as well as humanitarian achievements. But at the same time, if you are going to function in a highly scientific and technological world, that puts great cognitive demands upon each of us as individuals, that I need to learn about science, I need to learn about technology, and perhaps I need to uh, keep up with those areas because I'm uh, not only going to be interacting with them as the consumer, but you know, many of the careers that I might be considering in this scientific technological society are going to require me to be scientifically and technologically literate and to learn some mathematics, God forbid. <laughs> Again, those cognitive demands are uh, in, in some cases just alienating and outright frightening to a large number of people. So if you have a modern society that is robustly scientific and techno technological and individualistic and giving you a huge amount of freedom, but also assigning a lot of self-responsibility, there are going to be a lot of people who at their core will not want to take that on. They will be alienated. They will legitimately feel alienated from the modern world, but then they don't want to be telling themselves that there's anything wrong with them. In fact, they will want to find some rationalization that says, I'm okay, it's the world, it's modernity, that's the problem because it's not letting me be comfortable in my own skin. So yeah. I think it is a combination of kind of explicitly Rousseauian philosophy with some other elements clearly from Kant and Marx yeah. and, and some others. But uh, uh, I don't like to use Freudian labels too often, but a kind of arrested development psychologically for a lot of people. So would you say, I mean, this kind of touches on something that I've felt about collectivism more broadly, is that collectivism, at least to me, it seems like a way to almost rationalize, and that's kind of a funny word to use in this particular context, is a way to rationalize primitivism and disguise it as progress. And mm. what I, I could put it more specifically, in that responsibility you talked about in a more technologically advanced society, you have to adopt more responsibility to be an agent inside that society. And a lot of people would rather push off that responsibility to a broader group responsibility, because there's still responsibility there, but at least now it's been minimized because now part of your responsibility has been pushed onto everyone else, as opposed to more of an individualistic society where that is your responsibility to bear. Yes. So, yeah, no, so ab yeah, absolutely. It is a, it's an avoidance strategy. Now, in one sense, it's a, it's a little bit complicated because you know, there are enormous benefits to being part of a society. And uh, you know, a large number of those benefits are uh, you know, a sense of psychological security. You've got other people who are looking out for you. Societies typically have wealth. So through various insurance mechanisms, you, know, you can be looked after if uh, things go wrong. And, you know, it's just in many cases, uh, what we can do cooperatively in a society is much more than any of us can do individually. So division of labor and specialization, right? So, yeah, so the idea of just, you know, going off and being Robinson Crusoe on an island and I don't need a society, you know, that's not what anybody is, is, is talking about. Yeah. But uh, uh, the, the point that individualists, right, have to stress is 
that those social mechanisms only work if everyone is pulling their, their own weight and uh, uh, that there's a difference between I'm going to think for myself, I'm going to produce wealth, I'm going to be self-responsible, I'm going to be emotionally re resilient and uh, make, my, make my life, uh, but then I'm going to work with like-minded and likely responsible people yeah. to augment our efforts and then we will both be richer and more safe as a result versus someone who really is a, trying to be a free rider. It's, it's like a collective group of individual interests instead of a collective group of collective interests, I guess maybe yeah. you wanted to put. So this is the, the lesson that we all go through, most of us in high school, or all of us in high school, but we learn different lessons from us. You know, when our teacher uh, put us into groups and assign us to groups and make us do group projects, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> many of us uh, you know, have had good experiences of that, but uh, many of us cringe, right, as a... As a result of, oh no, another group project, because exactly that dynamic happens there. The idea of a group project is you divide the labor, you learn from each other, everybody has their specializations, and you find a way to coordinate the project, and it's uh, hopefully collectively better than anything that, that each of you individually could have done. Right, but then we do know there are the, the parasites. <laughs> yes, I was I was just about to say there's always that person there are that does different ways of do it. Yeah, yeah, different ways of being a parasite, and you're stuck with the parasite. And in fact, what the parasite does is drags the group down and makes it less than the sum of its parts. So you can yeah. blow that up to uh, society as a whole. I, I love the analogy of the group project because yeah, there's there's a sort of collectivist ideal, I guess you could say, where people imagine, well, the true collective thing is everybody's participating and helping achieve a greater goal. But it seems that what's acted out in practice is more of the latter of what you discussed, where there's a group of people that don't really want to do anything and want the benefits of the work of the few. Right. Well, yeah, uh, collections or social groups only work to the extent that people are first individualistic. Mm -hmm. That's to say that each individual is doing his or her own thinking yeah. and is, is, is uh, making the initiative to do the productive work that the group requires. So, uh, you know, collections or social, that's great, that's important, but it requires an individualist basis. Yes, absolutely agree. So I wanted to um, kind of move a little bit more into some specific territory with your books. So I heard in a, a recent podcast you did with uh, Jordan Peterson that you're working on another book. Could yes. you tell us a little bit about what stage you're in and to, um, I, I noticed you were kind of covering potentially even more positive philosophies because I know you've talked about a little bit more negative stuff in the past, so to speak. So um, what, where exactly are you at in that stage of the book? Yeah, well, that's, that's a question I'd give you a different answer depending on what week you uh, <laughs> talked to me right about. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the book is uh, is is a meant to be a positive right book because you know the books behind you Nietzsche and the Nazis some dark territory uh, the postmoderns and my analysis some very dark territory as well mm -hmm. and it's one thing to diagnose problems and intellectual movements yeah. uh, but each of those uh, is coming from intelligent people who are putting their finger on uh, difficult issues in philosophy and intellectual life more more generally. And so then the question is, how do we actually solve those issues? So yeah. what is it to be an individual? 
Uh, and what, what, what does that actually take? You know, given that we are born into societies, we learn a particular language, and in many cases we are subject to environmental pressures and biological inheritances, right, and so on. So what is a healthy individualism mean? Uh, there are all kinds of skeptical arguments about uh, the ways in which our cognitive attempts can go wrong, you know, perceptual illusions and miscategorizations and logical errors and psychological biases and so on. And uh, nonetheless, if we want to say that there is such a thing as knowledge and that objectivity is possible, well, how do we have a possible or a positive account of that that uh, yeah. withstands the, the, uh, the skeptical objections? If we want to say that human beings have agency and can control their thinking and their behavior and ultimately you know, end up with a, a normative position that says your life is largely what you make it, well, then we do need to engage in the arguments about volition versus theological determination and, uh, and uh, biological and environmental determination as well. So how do we make a positive case for uh, you know, agency in, yeah. a, in a cause and effect world? If we want to say that there are such things as right and wrong, that justice and injustice are real, you know, that racism and sexism really are evil and bad things. That is to say that there are objective uh, and universal human rights and principles that we should be striving for. And that it's very important that we set up our legal courts to solve our disputes and to punish the bad guys and lock them away so the rest of us are safe. So if we think all of those are important, well, uh, how do we actually get concepts like right and wrong off the ground you know, against, again, various sorts of subjectivist and relativistic challenges that say, no, we just, we just make them up, they're conditioned into us, or they're just emotional ejaculations or whatever. So what I'm doing is identifying uh, and in my view, there are 15 such issues, core issues, that uh, a healthy uh, uh, you know, 21st century enlightenment and beyond philosophy will, will have uh, worked out and integrated uh, so that you know, while we're aware of the, the, the challenges from various parts of the political spectrum and the philosophical spectrum, we know how to meet those challenges and continue to build a great civilization. Awesome. Well, I can't wait until it comes out. Do you have a estimated timeline of that at all? Or is it still just kind well, of more of a free flowing thing at the moment? Yeah, well, my semester ended almost a month ago, about three weeks ago. So I'm in transition to serious summer writing. And the book is right now, uh, two thirds to three quarters done. Very so cool. uh, the optimistic part of me wants to say that by the end of the calendar year, I will have it all done and then I'll be shopping around for publishers. Very, very cool. All right. And so I guess the last question, we're getting to the end of our time here. So we're, um, we're both on a little platform called ThinkSpot. So ah. one of the things I wanted to kind of throw out there is what's your opinion of ThinkSpot so far? What are some of your like favorite features and what are some things maybe you think could possibly be better about the platform? Yes. Well, um, what I like about ThinkSpot are the the, uh, the policies, right? First and, and foremost, yeah. we do know a lot of the major social media platforms have behind the scenes a lot of uh, suppression of viewpoints that they don't think are are appropriate. So one Shadow thing banning. that 
yes, has said explicitly is once you're on the platform, uh, we're not going to ban you no matter what you say, you know, barring, you know, legal requirements. So you're convicted for defamation or some sort of thing. And then we have to dissociate right from you. So it's going to be a robustly free speech uh, platform. And the idea is, you know, there are lots of stupid opinions out there, of course, but the way we find out that they're stupid is by letting them be announced and uh, arguing about them vigorously. And then we, we, uh, we learn and the next generation learns that they're stupid. So I think that's, that's, uh, that's important. They also are, are making some good efforts at uh, dealing with the problem of trolls and the ways in which in our first generation of social media, we know that it's easy for online conversation to ge- degenerate into uh, you know, just all of the uh, various fun stuff. It degenerates. So there's a long laundry list of, uh, of bad things that happen. Yeah. So they are uh, initially um, asking a, a select number of people whom they think are, are good, smart people onto the site and having them do what they want to do. The idea then is that that sets a tone, yeah. that's a standard uh, for content and for discussion. And then that uh, uh, those people then can model how to have conversations about difficult and emotionally charged issues. Yeah. And so you then create a culture that then will uh, uh, survive once you scale up the, up the culture as well. And then little things like uh, uh, in, in comments, we all know that it's easy for us to uh, reject, react in a knee-jerk emotional way. Someone says something and it irritates me and the first thing that comes to my mind is some epithet or some insult and I just you know, say something to yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so they have, you know, a little, just, you know, just one little thing that, you know, each comment has to be, say, 25 characters, which, uh, mm. which means you just can't say F you and move on. Right? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're an idiot. You know, because 25 characters means you actually have to think about something and make two sentences. And, yeah. uh, and hopefully yeah. one of those sentences has the word because in it. So you say your opinion and here's my reason. Right? Yes. That and so on. So they are trying to, uh, to do that. So they're drawing on you know, what's good and bad about all of the existing social media platforms and trying to, to uh, make this the next generation right, platform. Yes. The, uh, the negatives have been that, uh, in, in my experience, it's been a very slow rollout and they overpromised that, uh, that uh, the idea was, you know, we're gonna start at the beginning of 2019 and we'll have full rollout within six months or nine months, right, or so on. Yeah. Uh, and that was perhaps you know, too optimistic, all right, an, an, an estimate. So uh, now I don't know much about the technical side of things. I know it's an enormous undertaking, but yeah. I do think that uh, the slower rollout has, has, uh, has harmed it. And certainly, you know, you know, an important thing is while there were a number a dozen or so you know, very smart people initially invited to be part of the, the platform. Uh, you know, Jordan Peterson was the most famous of them. And then he had, uh, during the rollout, his own personal issues that arose. So he's been minimally active and that I think has uh, also uh, been a, uh, made it less successful than it, uh, than it otherwise could be. So hmm. early stages yet, but it's a very promising new social media platform. And yeah. so far, I found uh, uh, it's uh, the, the team at ThinkSpot are working 
well with me as one of the content providers, that the, uh, the tone of the discussion is uh, orders of magnitude of higher quality than I've experienced at other social media platforms. So it's been good yeah. interchange. So we'll, uh, we'll see. Very cool. Very cool. So I appreciate you being on the show today. I have one final question for you. And I think it's probably the most important question I'm going to ask you. Um, when it comes to philosophy, I found my personal experience has been when I talk about philosophy and philosophical concepts with my friends and their friends and things like that, there tends to be this attitude like, okay, this is very cool. This is great abstract knowledge, but I don't really see the practical or, you know, the um, bringing it down to earth, so to speak. And yeah. so if you would, I would um, could you make a comment or maybe one example that pops to mind as to where philosophy can actually, basically, I think you bring it up in the book, Nietzsche and the Nazis, how the Nazis weren't just, you know, crazy people or, you know, they were, they had a philosophy that guided their actions. So um, what is your opinion on the importance of philosophy and its role um, in revolutions and movements? Yeah. Well, that's a great question and, and a very important one. Yeah, no, but you're right. When we start doing philosophy and we start talking about all of these abstract and often weird issues, right, that, mm -hmm. that arise in philosophy, you know, a lot of us are like you know, the kids we used to be back in ninth and 10th grade math class. And there's just all these abstract formulas being kicked around and do this, do that, and the other thing. And the standard question that millions of us asked you know, every year is, why is this useful? What does this have to do with life, right, and so on, and that's a kind of gut check for the math teacher, you know, can the math teacher to 14 and 15 year olds make the case for why mathematics is in fact practically applicable, right, or not, and we lose a huge number of people because math teachers don't, don't do that job very well, yeah. and the same thing is, is true with, uh, with philosophy teachers. So I like to uh, you know, draw an analogy also to physics. You know, physics is extraordinarily abstract and you start reading discussions and it's hard and all of these weird theories get thrown around. But at the same time, we do know that the, the physics at the highly theoretical level, once it gets worked out, gets applied, that there's lots of engineering products that come out of that, that the entrepreneurs then take and uh, then they you know, make all sorts of gadgets that we use in our lives. So you know, this is you know, my, my, my phone here, this is, you know, a practical application of a huge amount of theoretical physics. So absolutely. Uh, but being able to make those transitions is, uh, and all the connections is, is important. So, but the quick and dirty version would be, you know, to say, for example, yeah, that the Nazis, it's easy to dismiss them as just a bunch of crazy disturbed guys who lucked into power somehow and disaster happened. And that's, that's a dangerous position to take because, there are all kinds of Nobel Prize winners and PhDs in philosophy, history, and law who are true believer, gung-ho Nazis. And uh, for those of us in the philosophy profession and in, in the legal profession, you know, we look back on them as towering giants of their time. And they were true believers in the philosophy that gave rise to Nazism. The same thing would be said about Karl Marx. You know, Karl Marx was a PhD in philosophy. And he came up with an entire philosophical system that convinced a lot of very intelligent, very energetic people as being true. And they put it into practice and a couple of hundred million people had their lives destroyed right, as a result of that. 
John Locke, Adam Smith, and the others. They were philosophers, right? professor of moral philosophy, Adam Smith, and John Locke writing huge numbers of philosophical works. Highly abstract principles that then, again, convinced a large number of intelligent, well-educated activist types, the founding fathers of the United States, and they put it into practice, and then we get a different kind of political system. Uh, the French Revolution, I think, is another important example here, particularly by the time we get to the, the third phase of it, which was the destructive phase. So someone like Robespierre, who was a very intelligent lawyer, uh, was a true believer in, in Rousseau, you know, carried the social contract around with him the way people carry the Bible around with them if they are true believing, yeah. and saw himself as taking Rousseau as, in effect, the Bible, and he's going to uh, implement that in, in, uh, in the French Revolution. And again, the practical results are, are there. That's not to deny that it's not hard work and that the connections need to be made, but uh, the fact that we live in a world in which life expectancy has more than doubled in the course of a century, that has never happened before in human history. A lot of philosophical and scientific, very abstract thinking made that possible. And so yeah. we should uh, make our efforts within the scope of our own lives, of course, to understand that and certainly respect and appreciate it and not take it for granted. Get things right at a principled level, life goes well. Get things wrong, we know as individuals, we screw up our lives often by committing to, uh, to inappropriate habits and beliefs. And the same thing holds the major disasters is socially are resulting from major disasters philosophically. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. I think it's, it's sort of a truism that everybody acts out a philosophy and it's, do you know what philosophy you're acting out? And so um, I really appreciate you taking the time, uh, Dr. Hicks, for being here today. Mm -hmm. um, for anybody who's interested, please go check out Dr. Higgs' book, Explaining Postmodernism, Nietzsche and the Nazis. I will have links in the description for both of those books. Also, you've got a podcast, Open College, I believe it's called? Open College Podcast, yes. Yes, very cool. There will be a link for that as well. Go take a listen nice. to his podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you again for being here, Dr. Hicks. No, thanks for the recommendations, but also, yeah, thanks for the very intelligent questions, a, uh, an enjoyable conversation. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully we can have you on the show again sometime. All right. Let's plan for it. All right. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. I want to thank you so much for watching this episode of Logocentric. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Hicks. If you want to see more interviews just like this, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell to be notified when we post any content just like this. Also, don't forget to like and share the video if you enjoyed it and drop a comment of anybody you would want me to interview in the future. I'm Logocentric. Thank you for watching. <laughs>